Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode. In this week's episode, we visit with Scott Roth, the CEO of LegitScript. LegitScript is a rapidly growing company that combines big data with the world's leading team of experts skilled in highly regulated and complex sectors, which includes transaction laundering detection, pharmaceuticals, online gambling, and more. And in this episode, Scott discusses the last 20 years in technology, including exits, IPOs, building team trust as a new leader, blue ocean innovation, growth strategies, and marketing success in a virtual world. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's conversation with Scott Roth of LegitScript. Scott Roth, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Hey, Jared. It's, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I guess let's jump into this. So uh, you've been doing the tech thing now for roughly about 20 years after finishing up an MBA. So uh, let's start there, kind of the journey of uh, the MBA program through to where you are today at LegitScript. So we'll, we'll jump into LegitScript in a second, but kind of what were some of the career decisions that led you to this moment now? Sure. Yeah. Happy to talk through that a little bit. So I actually did my undergrad degree and did kind of business and focused on marketing. And so I actually went and started out in sales, did sales for a couple of years, actually selling for ADP, selling payroll processing and outsourcing on that front, which was, in hindsight, a really, really cool start because you really learned how to build your own book of business, how to prospect, how to cold call. I mean, it was not a glamorous job at all because I was working with my territory was three zip codes in suburban St. Louis and calling on companies that had between one and 99 employees. So super small businesses, pretty fascinating stuff. That for sure made you a better marketer, right? I mean, for salespeople that are working with marketers that have never actually seen or experienced how the product or content encounters the client, yeah. it can be so true. frustrating. So that for sure has, has made you a better marketer along the way, understanding kind of where the client, company, and content all collide. For sure. For sure. And I feel like, yes, it gave me some street cred when I was on the marketing side dealing with sales teams that I actually carried a bag at one point in my life. So yeah, so that was kind of the start. I then you know moved out to Portland and went to Portland State and did my MBA, which was awesome. I knew I actually I knew I wanted to live in Portland. So I'm like, I'm just going to go to the school that's right in the heart of Portland. And it's going to give me the best opportunity to get a job with a local company. And that played out, I actually got an internship my the between my two years of grad school, with a local software company called web trends. Um, they brought me on as an intern and then kept me on as a contractor as I finished up 
my second year of grad school. And then I was super fortunate because that was 2003 and the economy was horrendous. And so to have that foot in the door is kind of the only reason why they were able to hire me on as a full-time employee after that. So I spent a bunch of years in technology, really in kind of the marketing tech side of the world with a company called Exact Target that was headquartered in Indianapolis. We ended up having an amazing growth journey there. When I started in 2007, we had, I think, 200 employees. And over five years, we grew to 2,000 employees, took the company public, had a really successful IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. And then a year later, were acquired by Salesforce, which was unbelievable. You know, I, we thought we were doing big and cool stuff at Exact Target, but then to be dropped into the world of Salesforce, which is just such an unbelievable machine to be a part of, was really cool and really helped to develop and grow, kind of just take my skills to the next level. And then, you know, decided after going and working for a Salesforce partner for a couple of years as their chief marketing officer, and then ultimately a general manager running one of the divisions of the company, that it was time to time to try this whole thing out and do it on my own and see if I could run a company. And so I was super fortunate back in 2016 to get an opportunity to partner with uh, an amazing founder, a guy named Eric Winquist, who started JAMA Software and join him and really be handed the baton from Eric to be the CEO of JAMA and had a great four-year run uh, with JAMA, saw a ton of growth, ton of development, raised a bunch of money, and then uh, moved over to LegitScript. I guess it's almost a year ago now. So started with LegitScript in June of 2020, right in pandemic time, which has been fascinating. But basically, kind of doing it again. I actually am partnered with uh, another amazing founder, a guy named John Horton, who is our founder and uh, has handed the baton to me as CEO and getting to work together with him to continue to grow and really drive the future of what LegitScript is up to. Before we jump into kind of what it's been like to partner with founders in, in a leadership capacity, let's talk a little bit about LegitScript. What is it, kind of size and scope and value proposition, and I guess kind of some of the current strategic initiatives of, of where you're seeing success in the marketplace? Sure, happy to talk about it. It's, a, it's an amazing company, an amazing story. Really proud of the team and the work that we do. So our, I'll start with the mission. Our mission is to make the internet and payment ecosystem safer and more transparent. And the way that we go about doing that is we partner with large internet platforms and payment companies. So the likes of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Square, Shopify, others like that. And we are essentially kind of a extension of their compliance or their risk and their trust and safety teams. So all of those companies you know, do a ton of work internally to make sure that they're trying to, you know, have as good of a experience for their consumers as possible. But we have really deep expertise of being able to use a combination of technology, data, and human insights to find criminal or fraudulent behavior that might be happening on the platform. So some of that comes in the form of advertisements that are 
advertising illegal products or problematic products. Some of it is user-generated content that's showing up on the product on the platform that's problematic. And then some of it's in the payments flow. So making sure that, you know, merchants are who they say they are and they're using the payment capabilities to process payments for legitimate products versus doing transaction laundering, which is basically just the online version of money laundering. And so we have some really amazing clients and partners that we've been working with for a long time. But this is a a whole area where it's kind of like a constant game of whack-a-mole, where we are always trying to stay on top of what are the trends in criminal behavior? How can we help these platforms ensure that consumers are not going to be harmed, whether it's illegal pharmaceutical drugs or weapons or hate and harm speech? You name it, we are trying to partner with these platforms to keep as much of that bad stuff off the platform as quickly as possible. That is fascinating to me. Kind of the the next frontier, I guess, of the internet age. Probably a tremendous amount of innovation going on there. Probably some of it uh, is kind of proprietary IP, but I, I guess as you're helping to lead a company when I look at your background and your set of experiences, I'm reminded of the book Range. It's by David Epstein. The subtitle is Why Generalists Will Triumph in a Specialized World. It's essentially people that can connect the dots through these subset of experiences that allow them to kind of concept stack and see solutions and the propensity for a generalist to be able to facilitate collaborative breakthroughs with specialists. And so when you're looking at kind of the client experience, the value proposition, value capture, like how do you bill for this? Do you have any thoughts, I guess, in terms of how do you approach from a leadership perspective, innovation, you know, particularly in the environment that you're in? Yeah, I guess what what really resonates with me on what you just said there in kind of the generalist and the specialist world is... When you peel things back a little bit with, I think, what has kind of become my niche or my sweet spot, if you look at kind of the dynamic of when I joined JAMA as CEO and when I've joined LegitScript as CEO, is the thing that I really love and I think am wired for is what I'll call kind of like the awkward teenage years of a company. (laughs) These companies that I've joined, like they're not startups. They've been around for a while. They've established, you know, product market fit. They've got a good amount of revenue that's coming into the business, maybe brought on outside funding, things like that. But they are not a mature enterprise. And so they are like right in these kind of awkward teenage years or this messy middle of really kind of figuring out like, how do we scale this business effectively and efficiently? How do we maybe take one product? that was a really good success in the market, but add additional products onto that. How do we really scale our go-to-market operations? Maybe we've been focused on one particular geography, but this is something that we could take either nationwide or even global. And that was a big case of what I did at JAMA was to help expand into Europe and kind of across the globe. And so that is my sweet spot and my jam. And I, I just kind of love that. I love that size of company too, where, you know, you've got 150, 200 employees. Like it's, it's big enough that you can get stuff done, but it's also small enough where you can know everybody and you can really dig in and build those personal, personal relationships. I love that element 
but it takes constant innovation and constant reinventing of everything you're doing. And that's one of the things that like, I really love doing when I came into JAMA and also when I came into LegitScript is there's so much that's going well. How do you capitalize on the things that are going well within the business, but also really quickly figure out what's not going as well as it could be going and how do we put intentional focus on some of those areas and bring some outside perspective that maybe the founder or the team that was in place just hadn't had to really help that kind of acceleration. And I think that outside perspective and the willingness to kind of go into some of the, I hate to call them sacred cows, but to like go to some of the places where there could be opportunity for improvement that just haven't been addressed before. So I'm, I'm intrigued. We're going we're gonna to stay on this topic. I want to understand what you've learned about a relationship that at face value seems like it could be challenging, right? When you're partnering with the founder of, of an organization, somebody who in many ways hasn't ever necessarily had their thoughts challenged necessarily, and you're being brought in to be a change yeah. agent. So it's kind of, it reminds me of, that we're in a turbulent world, right? And amongst all the cognitive skills that matter beyond just being smart, it's the ability to rethink and unlearn. And so you're probably going through that exercise often, but also also these founders you're partnering with are as well. So what are some of the common denominators around like what it takes for that relationship to actually be additive versus destructive to an organization? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, I think one of the, one of the most complicated parts of this equation of, you know, how does someone come in as a quote unquote professional CEO to partner with a founder to go to that next level? Well, so first and foremost, I will be honest with you, like 90% of this success lies on the founder's shoulders, (laughs) not on my shoulder as the one who's coming in. And it takes someone who is humble to be able to admit that, you know, the way that they did things may have been great, but it's not the way that we have to do things. And so I just have so much respect for both Eric and John, uh, JAMA and LegitScript for being just really good people who are humble. They want their company to succeed and grow and they're comfortable enough to know that it can happen without them being the one who's you know necessarily calling all the shots. But that relationship and that trust, to your point, is so absolutely critical. And I think that's where, you know, what I've tried to do when I come into these equations is not try to challenge everything. It's really to get in there and understand like there are so many things that are going well for this business to be have been able to get to this point. Tell me about all of those things. Why did you make these intentional decisions? Are they maximized? Could we take them to the next level? And so you're not coming in and saying, here's all the things are wrong, but what are the things that are going well? And could we take them even further? You know, you're also looking for what's, what might be out there if there are things that aren't going well that just clearly need to be addressed. But I think that mentality and approach of if you're going at it from a standpoint where you're assuming positive intent, it allows them to receive it in a different way of like, okay, this person's not here to just pick this business apart. They're actually here to really understand and learn 
and partner together, I think it just is a, it's just a different mind shift that happens. So you talked about trust. That's mission critical. And we've talked about this previously, you know, in the five dysfunctions of a team, Patrick Lencioni talks about the absence of trust creates the fear of conflict, which perpetuates the lack of commitment, the avoidance of accountability, and essentially inattention to results. So the anecdote would be to start with trust, trust that would enable us to have conflict, conflict in terms of the pursuit of truth, essentially, team commitment, accountability, and and ultimately the results. And so the framework sounds wildly simple. You know, Lencioni himself is fascinated that a book that says trust is important would be a New York Times bestseller many, many times over. But organizational trust is, is so difficult. So I guess that's Lencioni's approach to building trust. You just indicated that trust is important. I guess, help me understand again, kind of how trust and trust building, like from a tactics yeah. perspective, how do you enter an organization and, and build it as fast as possible? Yeah, it's a great question. And I love, I love Lencioni's stuff and definitely use the five dysfunctions many times throughout my career. The thing that I have done, and I did this both at JAMA as well as at Legit Scripts, that I think has helped to get things moving quickly. And I'm fortunate because of the size of the company, I could pull it off. But the very first thing I did after walking in the door and figuring out where to sit, although in this case, it was easy because I was at home. (laughs) So I knew where to sit. Does simplify the decision-making process. Yeah. But the very first thing that I did was I had a one-on-one conversation with every single employee in the company. And both companies, when I joined, it was actually right around the same size. JAMA, it was 115 people. LegitScript was 125 people. Wow. So, I mean, like that, I just want to, I want to take a purposeful pause just for the audience to understand like what that, what that commitment is, right? So 125 people. A couple months. (laughs) Yeah. It, that's a significant investment of time. And one could argue that's the scarcest resource that the company has is, is your time as the leader. It was that important. It was that much of a priority that you prioritized 125 one-on-one meetings. Best thing I've ever done. And I will do it again if I ever join another company that exists. And I'd probably try to do it even if the company had 500 employees. I agree with you. But I mean, how often do we hear, I don't have time? I don't have time for that. I get back to the saying that time is a created thing. So to say I don't have the time is really to say I don't want to. I mean... Why was it that important? Yeah, well, 100% agree with you. I mean, my wife jokes that I have 26 hours in my day, but it's just because of what's, <laughs> what I've intentionally prioritized and how I want to make this happen. So why that was so critical for me was a couple of things. One, it was intentionally designed to build trust at every single level of the company. What I do in those conversations is I don't talk at all about me and what I'm doing and what I'm there for. But I go in 100% with a goal to listen to them, to understand who they are. What did you do before you came to LegitScript? Tell me about your career. Where are you from? What's your family life like? Talk to them about why they came to LegitScript. Why did they join the company? What are the things they like the most about the company? What are the things they like the least about the company? What do they like to do in their free time? What do they like to do when they're not working? And what should I know about them from a personal perspective? I get so much information. It's so amazing. And it helps me to not only figure out the people that I'm working with and the company that I'm working with, 
But I think it really helps them to understand that I am a genuine human being who is coming here to just help. I don't have all the answers. I don't have this figured out. I'm coming in from scratch and I need to understand from all of you where we need to go together as a team. And I also, by the way, I want to know who you are and I want to be able to have a personal relationship with you. And so I learned so much from all of those. And I think people get a better chance to you know, see me for who I am as a part of that as well. As a CEO of a company, you juggle a lot, right? There's a tendency for problems to kind of roll uphill organizationally. Yep. And there's a variety of different stakeholders in, in your decisions, right? Directly, you've got employees or teammates that are impacted by the decisions. You've got investors and, and shareholders that are impacted by the decisions. And, and you've got customers and prospective customers that are impacted by these decisions. And so as you look at all of these stakeholders, how do you manage sometimes these competing priorities or long-term, you know, Jeff Bezos talked extensively about the alignment of, of investors and employees and, and the clients, customers. But at times in the near term, there can be sometimes these dichotomies. And so I guess, how do you manage sometimes these perceived competing priorities of the customer versus your team? Yeah, another great question. I always look for, and I think you kind of alluded to it with the Bezos comment, is what I kind of call the triple win. And where can I find things that are a win for the company overall and our shareholders, the employees, and our customers? And looking for things that fall into that intersection is kind of the sweet spot. And, you know, obviously you want to try to get as much to line up in there where you actually have a win on all three of those sides. And I think that's one of the things that's actually really special about LegitScript. We are a very mission-driven company. And making the internet and payment ecosystem safer and more transparent, if we are able to actually go do that, it is great for our clients and our customers because we're helping them with a really difficult problem and challenge that they have to be able to make that happen for their customers and consumers. It's great for our employees because when I met with all those 125 legit scripters at the beginning, what I heard from every single one of them is they came here because of our mission and they stay here because of our mission and the people. And so us executing and doing that work is great for them. And then, of course, if we're you know able to go do that work and it's great with our employees, our shareholders are going to benefit because we're going to take on more work and bring on new platforms. When stuff doesn't fall as nicely into that mix, you know, I think the way that I think through it is kind of a constant process of evaluation and prioritization, both on the short-term horizon and the longer-term horizon. Is this something that we need to do because it's good for now or is it good forever? And I think by breaking it down into those two parts, that helps me personally, at least, kind of do a bit more dissecting and prioritizing and even just kind of really beating up whether or not we're going to do something. Because I feel like sometimes people get locked into this view of like, especially when you're thinking about bigger decisions, you know, they can be a huge commitment that you're trying to make. But maybe it is something that you need to do and you need to only think about it as a short-term impact and not worry about the long-term approach. Or maybe it's the exact opposite. 
is this is something that's a long-term decision that we have to think about. So I personally like breaking it down into a couple of different buckets that then helps me decide whether that's going to be a priority for the business or not. I'd like to know if you have any other kind of clarity hacks, exercises that when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused that give you that clarity, you know, I sometimes go through a quick exercise of must, should, could, and won't and dropping those buckets, like filling those buckets up accordingly. Like when my calendar starts to overflow, that's one way to look at it. You know, I've also gone through four helpful lists, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's missing, what's confused. And then, you know, is it getting better, staying the same or getting worse? And then ultimately overlaying, do I have full control, partial control or no control? And so these are some kind of clarity hacks that I've borrowed from coaches along the way. I'm, you know, so you said, is it good for now or good for forever? I think that's interesting time. Like, yeah. So clarity hacks. Yeah, the other one, I I mean, I use a lot. And this is just kind of because of, again, wanting to have 26 hours in a day. I'm constantly doing a keep, stop, start inventory of everything that I'm working on. And so that's another big one for me is like, okay, what are the things that are on my plate that I absolutely know that I need to keep doing? What are the things that I've got to get off my plate, either off my plate for good or... Maybe for now, I need to delegate something to someone else before it comes back around. And then start, you know, what are the things that I'm not doing right now that I should be doing? That's kind of the area that's the most exciting for me because that's the stuff where, you know, there's stuff that probably should be on my plate and things I should be thinking about, but for whatever reason, they haven't made it onto the plate yet. But that I tend to find is kind of the exciting part because it's either, you know, future strategic opportunities new things that I want to get into, or I think the company should get into. And that's a part that I always like to have a backlog of stuff that I can bring bring back together. In the midst of kind of COVID right now, talk to me a bit about how you're marketing. How do you grow in a virtual environment? Yeah, you know, from our standpoint, it's been really fascinating. Obviously, I think it's, this is going to be one of the areas where this whole virtual world is so difficult on sales and marketing teams. Because so many of the ways that you connected with prospects and customers in the past have been thrown out the window. I mean, it's so much accelerated the, you know, online knowledge that people have as a part of the buying process. So, you know, I think that what's really great about this is that I think it's really accelerated the true account based marketing where you're not trying to go out and solve problems for the masses, but you are spending your very dedicated resources and your finite marketing and sales dollars on a very specific target list of people that you want to, you know, that you vetted through whatever criteria are going to be the right ones for your business. I think that was obviously something that was kind of emerging and evolving and kind of coming into to fashion was really that whole account-based evolution. But I feel like it's kind of happened on steroids now because the level of which you have to know your customer or know your prospect is so much greater because of the environment that we're in. And when you're operating in a digital world, all the noise that you have there. I also think too, I mean, from our standpoint, the pandemic has been fascinating because when you think about the work that we're doing at LegitScripts, the bad actors are 
active in good times, they are really active in bad times. And so when you have a global pandemic, you have an economic challenges and just different dynamics, you've got social justice initiatives and issues that are happening. That is an environment that is ripe for a lot of, you know, criminal and fraudulent activity to pop up. And so for us, it's been really, really busy. We've been growing our relationship with all of our existing clients just because of the amount of, you know, bad stuff that's popping up on the platform. It's definitely been trickier to bring on new business and new clients because of, you know, some of that opportunity for building relationships just isn't quite there or people are skeptical to spend money. But with all of our existing clients, you know, we've seen dramatic growth due to the pandemic and some of the unfortunate downside that happens as a part of that. Turns out cutting rebar right outside of your window is uh, pretty loud. So uh, apologies to the, uh, to the listeners, but we'll be scrappy. We'll fight through this. But real quickly, Scott, you've spent time in the startup space and you're, you're essentially innovating. It's blue ocean strategy versus red ocean strategy. Uh, there we go. The rebar is done getting cut. So quick question, though, would be when you're innovating in a, a new space, you're creating a space. And, and so it's creating demand for a product that doesn't yet really meaningfully exist which I think is, is enviable. And one of the reasons that when, when product market fit occurs, that these tech companies scale and, and take off, right? So it's software as service, the software code scales, but it's also red o- or it's blue ocean. And so you, you can just explode. So how, how do you find product market fit in a blue ocean strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, so again, Based on my experiences, I've been really, really fortunate that I have worked with some amazing founders who are like true entrepreneurial visionaries. They are unbelievable entrepreneurs. They're the amazing idea people. And I do not consider myself to necessarily be strong on that. I'm definitely stronger on how do you scale up an organization? How do you grow? How do you evolve? You know, how do you kind of, like I talked about earlier, how do you go through those awkward teenage years and do it successfully? So, as a result of that, like I mentioned earlier, there is a notion of we have a great product that's in the market, but in order to sustain our growth, we have to continue to innovate on that product. And a lot of times we have to add additional products into the portfolio to be able to really extend the work that we're doing. And so the way that... So again, so that's kind of my, my worldview there. So it's a little different than just creating something from scratch. But you know, the way that I really like to take a look at that is to really get a deep and intimate understanding from the customer's perspective of what are the things that they're doing before they use your product or service and then after they use your product and service. Because that starts to signal where there might be adjacencies for your business to potentially explore. And, you know, I think there's problems that companies get into at times where they want to add on additional product lines, but they might be a completely different buyer or a different user. And so that's really difficult for companies to do is to bring something new that has a totally different dynamic. But if you can figure out with your core buyer and user, what are other things that they're doing that are pain points that you might be able to solve for? 
that's a really easier and faster way to accelerate growth because you're not having to relearn who this buyer and user customer are is you're learning what are the other problems that that particular individual or company have or person within a company has that you're going to go add on and solve for. And it's a different approach and a different tactic. But I feel like for kind of that add-on products, and that's the world that I've lived in, it's a much better chance for success when you keep the same buyer in mind. No doubt. Well, we've warmed up and I I wanted to save the best for last. So we've talked about your identity in terms of how the world sees you. But I just wanted to spend uh, the last few minutes today talking about probably the identities that are most important to you. Husband, father to two, some, two incredible kids, you know, son, friend, but also a foster parent. So I, I guess you're juggling a lot and we talked about priorities. I guess, how have you gotten clarity on your priorities and how do you coordinate them across a rather crazy calendar? Yeah. Yeah, happy to chat a little bit about that. You know, for me, I want everything. (laughs) And so, again, going back to the need for 26 hours in a day, I, I mean, I love my family and my, you know, my biggest goal is to be an amazing husband and amazing father and all the things that you mentioned. And so I think for me, it's really being real with myself when I'm looking at, you know, career opportunities. I'm not going to do something that jeopardizes that. And I'm going to need to figure out the path that I want to go on. How is that going to be able to exist, but exist in the framework of how I want to live my life and where I want to invest, you know, with my family and the things that we're doing and the things that are important to me. And so it means that I've had to say no to things you know, as I was growing in my career. And I think this is one of the things that I think was really fortunate that I did is after I got married to my wife, which is now almost 16 years ago, went through a process of really thinking together, you know, what do we want our lives to look like together as a couple, but also from a professional standpoint, what do I want that to look like? And I knew that I wanted to be a CEO by the age of 40. And so because I had that goal, it really helped me to figure out a roadmap of what were the things that I needed to pick up from a career standpoint in order to be able to make that happen. And it gave me a decision-making guide when opportunities presented themselves. You know, One, was it going to fit into the framework of our life and our family? And what did we want to make happen on that side? But two, is this helping me progress to that ultimate goal of becoming a CEO by the age of 40 or not? And so there were opportunities that I turned down where I could have, you know, made more money or stayed local and didn't have to like move my family for a year, but they wouldn't have helped me to get to that ultimate goal of where I wanted to go. So I think that was an important element is having kind of that goal in mind of where I wanted to go. And that's helped force some of the prioritization. And then just honestly, like I said, being really rigid about here are the things that I'm not going to sacrifice and being honest with myself that it means there's probably a lot of companies where I might not be a good fit for the CEO job and being comfortable with saying that's okay that those are going to those are going to pass by me, but there are going to be companies out there where it is a right fit and being able to make that happen. Scott, we could continue the conversation for another couple of hours, but 
we're constrained. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to to share some of the incredible insights and experiences that you've accumulated over the last 20 years. And super excited for for you and the team at LegitScript in terms of the work that you're doing and the innovation that you're bringing to the market. And again, thanks so much for for being generous with your time and knowledge. Yeah, you're welcome. And again, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Excellent.